As I said a moment ago, we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, where we have invited and encouraged the entire congregation uh, to read together through the book uh, in its entirety. We've invited you, put together a reading plan, and invited you to read essentially a chapter a day over the last several weeks. And this is the final week. We've got just three chapters left. And so uh, I hope and I pray that this has been a time of growth for you, that you have followed along. Uh, I think it's important for us as a congregation, as a community of faith, to, to, to pour over from time to time an entire book of the Bible. Because the truth is, if we're honest, that most of us encounter the Bible just in bits and pieces, right? When passages are read in the midst of worship, maybe, maybe we might look at an entire chapter one day as we are there in a Bible study. Maybe sometimes it's just snippets that are used in published prayers or devotional material, but I think it's important for us to see what holds it all together, the themes that run through the text, the threads that hold it all together, how a sense of the whole contributes to those individual passages that we might read. When I was uh, working on my doctorate several years ago, I had the chance to study with Walter Brueggemann, who was one of the premier Hebrew Scripture scholars. And in that class, he said that the importance of what the Bible says is only matched by the importance of what the Bible says in relation to itself. It's important to know the context of the text, how and where it all fits in the overall arc and the narrative, how it plays off of itself. You see, that kind of big picture outlook is vital for reading the Bible well. If we only observe just a series of passages without understanding how they all fit together, the truth is that we are liable to miss something that the book might be trying to tell, the points that it's trying to make, the way that it tries to move us as readers. So this spring, we started reading uh, entire books of the Bible together. We started with Luke during the season of Lent, and now we're doing this. We'll do another one after the first of the year and another one in the spring, all in an effort to become more biblically literate, more scriptural savvy. Now, if you've been reading along, you may remember that Acts started with Jesus ascending into heaven, that the Holy Spirit then descended upon the disciples turned apostles, and it empowered them to share the gospel, which gave birth to these Christian communities that eventually became called churches. And it's through those churches that the Spirit began to spread and became unstoppable, which is where we got the title of this series. Now, we eventually encountered a man by the name of Paul. Actually, when we first met him, his name was Saul. In the beginning, Paul was a Pharisee, which meant he was one of the religious leaders of the day. His job was to make sure that everyone was living according to Jewish law. But these 
Christians, as they were being called, didn't necessarily follow the law. They were following the, Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And so Paul, the Pharisee, Saul, the Pharisee, uh, started persecuting them, criticizing them, making life very difficult for them. But then one day he's on the road and encounters the risen Christ. And through this experience, he becomes blind. And over the course of the next several days, he has this conversion experience. And when he comes out of it, he changes his name from Saul to Paul, and he joins this Christian movement that at that point was known as The Way and started traveling all over, helping it to spread. And then in the 19th chapter of Acts, we learn that Paul discerns that the Spirit is calling, leading him to travel from Ephesus, where he was at the time, to go to Macedonia and to Jerusalem, and then eventually on to Rome. But the problem with that plan, however, is that much like Jesus was aware of the dangers that awaited him in Jerusalem, Paul knew that he might have a similar fate if he were to show up there. Just before we pick up our text for today, we read this at the end of chapter 20. When he had finished speaking, Paul, he knelt down with them, and they all prayed together, and there was much weeping, and they embraced Paul, and they kissed him, grieving especially because of what he had said, that they would not see him again. And then they took him to the ship, and that's where we pick up the story today. Today's reading is from Acts 21, verses 1 through 6. Here begins the reading. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. When we found a ship bound for Phoenicia, we went on board and set sail. We came in sight of Cyprus, and leaving it on our left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, because the ship was to unload its cargo there. We looked up the disciples and stayed there for seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and proceeded on our journey. And all of them, with wives and children, escorted us outside the city. There we knelt down on the beach and prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. You know, part of what I love about doing this type of series, reading through an entire book together, is that sometimes you just get to drill down and to look at some things that otherwise you might just sort of pass over, gloss over, maybe not even notice at all. As we have seen over the last several weeks, Acts has some incredible, some wild things happen. There are miraculous prison escapes, there are angels that appear, there are ordinary people, people like you and me, all of a sudden speaking fluently in languages that we've never learned. There are rousing speeches that have the ability to either convince or infuriate huge crowds of people. And yet, today, we read this. Essentially, it's a travel log and a farewell party on the beach. 
And I know what you're thinking. All of those great stories, Russ. Why did you choose this to read today? What are we missing? Well, I understand, and I'm glad you asked. Because there was this one little line in the midst of that passage. In fact, three words that sort of caught my attention. It gave me pause. It made me think. It compelled me to do a little more digging. Now, remember, to set the stage, Paul and some of his companions are on their way from Ephesus to Rome, making a few stops along the way, and they find themselves in the city of Tyre, a Phoenician port city, and they looked up the local disciples' church. They went online to see what time the worship service starts, and they decided to come inside to pay a visit. And while they're there enjoying the hospitality from these fellow believers in Tyre, the Tyrians, they entreat, they beg, they implore, they encourage him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. It was those three little words, through the Spirit, that caught my attention. Because it was through the Spirit this tells me, this tells me that this was not just heartfelt sincerity from Paul's hosts. They believed that God was in that. Now remember, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem because he believes that the Holy Spirit prompted him to go. But he knows what's waiting there, that he's probably going to be thrown in jail. And that's probably the best case scenario of what could happen to him. But yet still he goes because he has discerned through the Spirit that this is what God wants for him. But his hosts, on the other hand, they urge him not to go on. Acts doesn't tell us why, what specific reason. It doesn't unpack it at all. Just as Paul believes that God wants him to go, the people of Tyre suggest that he shouldn't. It is a clash of the wills, if you will. Maybe that's a little strong, but Christians in this situation are disagreeing. Now, fortunately, that sort of thing doesn't happen today. <laughs> in fact, I am proud to say that in 150 years of University Christian Church, we have always, at every step along our history, been of one mind, of one accord, always seeing things in exactly the same way. Can I get an amen? Now, if you believe that, I have some wonderful oceanfront property in Arizona that I would love to sell you. Here's the thing. Sometimes Christians disagree. I mean, I guess I've heard of other churches doing that, not necessarily here, but sometimes Christians don't always see eye to eye. There's an old adage in the church. Wherever two or three are gathered, you will have four or five different opinions. And we know that to be true. Now, I would also argue that I think right now, at this time in our history, and I'm not talking about the history of University Christian Church, I'm talking about the history of the world and of the United States, that the climate right now in our country, in our culture, is probably more divisive than it has been in many, many years. I read an article this last week, printed right after 9-11, 
the anniversary of that horrific event, that all of that goodwill that occurred 21 years ago after that horrific event, when we all came together as a nation, all of that over the last 20 years has gone away. And that we are now more divided than at any time in our history since the Civil War. And I think in many ways, we would agree that that is true. That might be the only thing that we agree on, but that perhaps is true. And I think, I'm afraid, that that divisiveness, that culture, that climate has seeped its way into the life of the church. I was speaking recently with a friend who's nearing the age of retirement. He's a pastor much like me. And he was telling me, he says, the thing that I've seen most different in the 35 years that I've been in ministry is that when I first started out preaching, that the average church member would come to church thinking at some point in the back of their head, I wonder what I'm going to learn today. Today, he says, most people come to church wondering, am I going to agree with what the preacher says today? Do you see how that's different, how that might engage us to see things in new ways? Every now and then I hear someone say something like this, with all the divisions in Christianity right now, it just makes me so sad. We fight about everything. I wish we could just stop all of these disagreements and just be unified and harmonious, you know, like the church originally was back in the good old days. But the truth is, is that is just pining for a day that never occurred. The truth is, as far back as we can look, throughout Christian history, we have seen tensions and squabbles and maybe even outright divisions and differences, opinions, Christians trying just to get along. So let me ask you, have you ever had one of those experiences where you, where you read something or maybe you see something, you experience something right alongside someone right beside you, but yet they see that, they hear that, they experience that vastly different than you did. I remember being in a book club a while back, and we read a book together. And at the end, we all came together to discuss the book. And one person spoke up and said, here's what I believe the book to be about. Here's the things that I gleaned from it. And I remember thinking, did we read the same book? Because that's not at all what I took away from the book. How many have ever had experiences like that? Have you ever had a conversation with a fellow Christian about just about anything, and all of a sudden you come to the realization that you have fundamentally different theological perspectives but yet you both came to those through good faith. By that I mean that sometimes different groups, sometimes different people reach different conclusions, both of them derived from attending faithfully to the Spirit. Now, remember, Paul has discerned that this is what God wants for him to do. Discern is different than deciding. Discernment is different than deciding. The truth is, is that oftentimes in the life of the church, in the life of the culture, we decide things, we make decisions. And those decisions are often based upon whoever has the best idea, whoever speaks the loudest, or who is most compelling. But discernment is different. 
Discernment is, involves prayer. By discerning what the Spirit is calling us to be, it involves a process of not necessarily listening to our own instincts, but to the proddings of God. Paul has discerned that God wants him to go, but yet the disciples entire, through the Spirit, have discerned that he shouldn't. Paul senses the Spirit leading him one way, the Tyrians leading him another. And we don't know if they debated, we don't know if they argued, if they had conversations in the church parking lot after the committee meeting. All we know is that he was not convinced by their convictions and decides instead to follow his own. And the two parties simply disagree. I am honored to be a part of the mayor of Fort Worth, Maddie Parker, her faith-based cabinet. Betsy Price, when she was mayor, invited me to be a part of this group. It's about 20 different faith leaders from around the city, and we gather together probably quarterly. And we talk about issues that are involved in the life of our church, in the life of our city. And, and the mayor shares with us some of her thoughts, and we share with the mayor some of our thoughts and the way we see things. We had a meeting this last week, the Faith-Based Council. And I'm not going to go into all that was discussed, but suffice it to say that there was an issue that came up about which there was not unanimous agreement. I'll let you read between the lines there. But these 20 faith leaders representing multiple faiths did not see this particular issue eye to eye. And the way that some saw this issue through the lens of their faith was vastly different from the way that others of us saw this particular issue through the lens of our faith. But both of us, both of us, both sides came to those realizations, came to those conclusions based upon our understanding of what it meant to be faithful, but yet they were vastly different. Now, interestingly enough, I was much more in alignment with the rabbi, the imam, and the Baptist preacher that were sitting at my table than I was with my Christian brother that was leading the charge on the other side of this particular issue, for what that's worth. Have you all seen the restaurant down outside of Austin, El Arroyo? They come up with quirky signs. It's a great follow on Instagram, by the way. I would encourage you. The one most recently says, all I know is that one of us is right and the other one is you. (laughs) On Sunday, or excuse me, on Wednesday... At that faith-graced cabinet, that was sort of the sense, the sense of that meeting. One of us, one of those groups was right, and the other one was the other one. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. As Christians, we're not always going to agree. As members of any particular community of faith, we're not always going to agree. My colleagues on my church staff will tell you that even as a group of clergy, We don't always agree. The truth is, I don't always agree with myself. There will be times when we will disagree. But we have to find ways to discern together, even when we don't agree. Ways to follow the Spirit into the future that God has for us. Matthew Skinner 
is a New Testament scholar, has written a commentary on the book of Acts. And he said this about this particular passage, every decision a church makes says something about what it understands God's desires to be about who gets to share in God's work and exactly how a church will commit itself to the justice and the reconciliation at the heart of the good news. Not every decision needs to be monumental, he says, but no decision is purely routine. When people ask me from time to time to describe the church that I serve, University Christian Church, I often define us as a big tent church. And by that, I mean that we have members on both sides of most issues. That we have people that tend to be on the far right. We have people that tend to be on the far left. But yet we come together every Sunday and we worship together. We gather around the Lord's table. We come together and we study scripture together in in small groups and in Sunday school classes. We come together because we understand We understand that not everybody is going to agree on policies and hot-button issues. We are a big tent church because because we understand that, that those theological, those political, those social differences, those present us an opportunity to grow, to learn from each other rather than to find ways to divide us and to draw up sides. You see, we believe, don't we, that that there is still more that unites us than divides us. That unity isn't based upon uniformity. And therefore, we don't ask you to check your convictions and your beliefs at the door, but want you to to bring those convictions, to bring those beliefs, but to be aware that others may have different convictions. Both of you have arrived at those decisions, those beliefs, those stances, through the eyes of your faith. Martin Buber is a theologian, and he once says, failing to see those with whom we disagree as made in the image of God will lead us down a dangerous path. We believe that those people that see the world differently than us, that they are just as much children of God as you or I or those babies that we bless this morning. Now, I suppose that Paul probably knew the importance of big tent churches, a place where there is room for everyone. And the reason that I believe this is because earlier in Acts, we learned that Paul was bivocational. Turns out that being an apostle didn't always pay the bills, so he had a day job, if you will. Do you remember what that job was? He was a tent maker. Maybe that's what it means to be people of faith, is to build bigger tents, not higher walls. Did you hear? Did you hear how the story ended? No one panics. No one calls anyone in the other group bad names. No one leaves in a huff, picks up their belongings and goes to another church? No, in fact, Paul stays an entire week. There are no threats. There are no denunciations. But notice also that no one brings the other side around to their way of seeing the matter either. But when they part, 
When they part, the scene was full of grace. All of the believers entire go with Paul to the beach and they pray with him and they say goodbye as he boards the ship and sails south to Jerusalem. It says they brought everybody, the wives and the children. And I'm glad. I'm glad that they brought along the children to watch what should happen when Christians disagree. And I wonder if sometimes, as people of faith, that we should be more interested in praying together with our neighbors on beaches than prevailing over them in every disagreement we may have. May that be what it means to be a person of faith. Amen. My youngest daughter, Whitney, and I are in a bit of a disagreement. She is the only child that is still at home while her two older siblings are now both in college. And when we gather around our family table for meals now, it feels a little empty. It feels a little lonely. And because those two play settings are not there anymore, you can also see all the life and wear and tear that our table has experienced through the more than 20 years that we've had it. She believes strongly that we need a new table. <laughs> and I do not see eye to eye with her. When I look at that table, I see all the scratches. I see all of the wear and tear as the stories that we have shared around the table together. I see all the laughs that we've had, all the disagreements we have. I even see the tiny little TCU that is etched in it that someone did while they did homework at some point in elementary school. It's all there all of it, the good and the bad, and it's all right before us. And I think about that when we come to this table. It's all right before us. All that we bring, all the stories, all of those conversations that we've had, 
all of the disagreements, we bring them to this table and we set it all aside to be reminded that we are loved by a God who loves us completely and who invites us into the work that God is already doing in the world. We remember that on that night that Jesus gathered with his disciples, that he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat, and when you do so, remember me. The same way he took the cup, blessed it, and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for all. Take and drink, and when you do so, remember me. Let us pray. Companion God, we find ourselves on a journey, a journey with difficulties and disagreements, as well as joys and solidarity. Through it all, you are with us. You invite us to this table, and it is a place of rest on the journey, a place that provides renewal and hope for whatever comes next. We ask your blessing on this bread and this cup, that as we continue the journey from this place, they will remind us of your love and presence with us. Amen. <laughs>